Welcome to the Explore the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Welcome to the Explore the Circular Economy podcast, where we discuss how to move away from a linear, take-make-waste economy to one that designs out waste and pollution, keeps products and materials in use, and regenerates natural systems. This episode is the first of a five-part series focused on the fashion industry, where the Make Fashion Circular team at the Foundation explore how fashion can thrive and not just survive by designing a circular economy for clothes. In this episode, Transforming the Fashion Industry, Make Fashion Circular lead Francois Suchet and Programme Manager Laura Bullmond summarise their vision for a circular economy for fashion, one where products, apparel, footwear and accessories are used more, made to be made again and made from safe and recycled or renewable inputs. Your hosts for this session are Laura Franco-Hanel and Seb Edgerton-Reed. Seb kicks off the conversation by asking Francois, aren't people just buying too many clothes and not using them enough? Welcome both. Francois, um, I mean, clothing utilisation is going down, clothing sales are going up. Someone watching this could be forgiven for just thinking, surely this is a problem that people are just buying too many clothes and not using them enough. Is that not the issue? Yeah, I think one of the key issues that we see with the industry is that there's a massive issue with overproduction. We produce a lot, a lot of clothing that end up being used less and less. And intuitively, you could think, well, actually, isn't the solution buying less and just keeping what we have forever and, and having one style? But if you think about like the industry at the moment is going towards a cliff, like a potential catastrophic outcome in terms of environment um, and, and social aspects. And if you just slow down, you just delay the time at which you reach that catastrophic consequences, but you're not necessarily really changing direction. And what we really need to do is change direction, continuing to provide the excitement that's linked to fashion without um, destroying the planet, basically. And that's why we've got this vision for a new system uh, that Laura might just explain. Yeah, absolutely. I What's can, this vision, Laura? I can tell you more about the vision. And I think, you know, this is looking at three things in in parallel and not just focusing on let's just stop you know making so many things but saying firstly how can we use what we have a lot more whether it's the products or the materials um, and really find new ways to to keep them in use how can we design and make products so that when they aren't used anymore they're very easy to take apart you can get the materials back out and actually really ensure they are recycled and the third thing is you know getting the fundamentals right from the very beginning you know um, that are just much better for people and the planet, um, eliminating hazardous substances and ensuring that they're grown in ways that are regenerative and, and really support um, the, you know, the farm and the system that they're, they're coming from. So asking, putting this, I, I, you know, I do feel quite sorry for consumers sometimes. Firstly, because actually uh, it's kind of a convenient word, isn't it, to say consumer when you're not really eating your t-shirts or your jeans, you're using them for a period of time. And secondly, because on the one hand, we kind of say, it's your fault, you need to do less and less and less. But actually, as we've experienced over the last you know, few months, when people do stop buying stuff, whether that's because they've chosen to do it or in the case of uh, the pandemic, because they've, things have been closed, that's actually really bad for the economy. And then, we, then when they come out of that, they're like, get back and buy it, go to your retail stores and try and get the economy moving again. You've got to play a role in that. So I think I really re-emphasize that point about this is how do we change the economic system versus just asking people to do less? And I think, you know, that point exactly, it, it couldn't have been more stark. You know, people have been calling for people to stop producing clothes, selling so many clothes, you know, an end for fast fashion. And actually, 
as soon as it stopped, you know, overnight, this caused huge problems, social problems. Um, you know, it just demonstrated how fragile the current operating model is and that this way of creating value and making money doesn't work the whole way across the fashion industry. And just because you were, you were talk we were talking about consumers, um, some of the new business models that we're going to be discussing in this conversation, such as renting your clothes or secondhand clothes, um, maybe some of these consumers or users um, might be reluctant to the idea, to these, to these new ideas. Um, how, how do we go about this? How do we educate, in a sense, our users to reuse their clothes? What, how do you go about this, Laura? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's an interesting question around whose responsibility is it to actually, you know, see this happen. Uh, and when it comes to using clothes, you know, new business models are referred to as things that are potentially rental, um, resale, finding ways to swap clothes to keep them in use, which of course is an option. Um, if you don't want to wear an item more than a few times or you like to have clothes that are new to you quite regularly, then those are obviously great options. Equally, having you know, a pair of jeans or a t-shirt that you just love that's really, really well made, that lasts you forever and that you can you keep in use and, and keep wearing it is another way to actually do that. So it, it's, you know, having the system there to offer it is great and offer these new business models is, I guess, some responsibility on the people offering them. How can they offer more convenience? How can they maybe offer an easier way for people to, to do that? Um, but equally, there needs to be some level of versatility across the whole way that the clothes are offered to ensure that, you know, for the people that just love certain items and want them there and, and want to have them regularly to wear, um, they are designed and made in a way that they can last and, and be with that person and, and worn over and over again. I sense, Laura, that your answer to a lot of our questions today is going to be that we need to apply across these three sort of vision statements we've talked about. It's not going to be the solution is new business models or the solution is to design our clothes so they can be easily recycled. Um, just maybe my final question about this kind of consumer point is, um, well, actually, I, I, it's not my final question. I'm going to have loads more questions. But um, if it isn't the responsibility of the consumers, Francois, whose responsibility is it? Where are we seeing innovative solutions coming from or where should they be coming from? So fundamentally, the, the main responsibility lies with the people who are at the core of the problem, which is the industry, right? I mean, the reason why we've got so, many, so much volume today is because the industry has become very good at stimulating desire for novelty over and over again, multiplying the seasons, using like trickery to make people want to come more often, but also like degrading the quality of the product so it fails faster and so you need to buy more often. And the, the other aspect of that is when we look at where lies the opportunity of a transition towards the circular economy, we see that very clearly the opportunity for the industry is huge. And that motivates the perspective that the industry is really at the core and really needs to be the driver of that change. After that, you also need policy to come and help and support that change to happen. But you also need to bring in your customers on the journey. I mean, the transition from a linear model to a circular economy won't happen overnight won't be easy and it's going to take time and a very long journey and the better and the e earlier you bring your customers in that journey with you tell them the story be transparent but where you're good but also where you need to make massive changes the better you will be because people will understand and stay with you for that journey and do we have an example can we can we just bring us to life for people a little bit i see there's a good question that's come in online already as well that we'll throw in there but when we talk about bringing your customer on your journey with you, what would be an example of that? Are there, uh, uh, resale is projected to grow by like 400% in the next 10 years. Obviously, companies and fashion and industry bodies are already starting to do this. 
Is there a good example that can illustrate that for our audience? Laura, sorry. Yeah, it's a good question. I'm mean, trying to think. We're seeing a variety of different um, options of, of resale that are that are popping up. Um, in terms of engaging, you know, the customer, I think that probably depends on who your customer is and understanding, you know, first of all, who they are. And we've seen H&M do this quite a lot. Is they're starting to experiment with a number of different reuse models. So they they've been looking, for example, at rental um, and trying that. They've also been trying repair. So I guess you know, there's this piece of first of all, just understanding who is your customer and how do they interact with your product. And I guess also how your product's made in the first place to fit within those models so that you can, first of all, really decide, you know, which is the one that's, that's going to be most suitable for you as an organisation. I don't know, Francois, I mean, you've been looking a lot more into the sort of business models as well, if you've got any further comments on that. Yeah, absolutely. What, what we see is that, for example, a lot of um, resale platforms that have popped up, like um, ThreadUp or Vestia Collective, they've been quite good at creating a community of people, like creating conversations, creating interaction within that. Um, I think in terms of community, the, the better is even deeper who's just creating like people who create their own selection of products. And, and through that, you really reinforce the connections that exist around your company because people feel that they are part of this community and that enables you to engage them, tell stories, share content with them in a much more effective way. And a lot of brands are looking at, for example, if you think about rental or re, uh, sorry repair, in, in some cases, one of the good advantages of putting a repair shop inside your shop, it brings back people in the store, which at the moment is quite challenging. I mean, people are doing more and more online. But if you bring them back into the store, you create more opportunities to engage them, to show what you're about, to make them feel part of the brand ecosystem. And that can be very valuable. And one, one of the other things, Laura, that you mentioned when you were explaining the vision, it's regarding materials and how we need to like, make our clothes uh, using safe materials and that, well, recyclable or from renewable inputs. Um, my question is, well, we've, we've seen this huge problem when we wash clothes and we release a lot of microfibers into our oceans. So how does a circular economy prevent this from happening? Um, and yeah, do you have some examples? of those. Yeah, I mean, the, the microfibers one is, is a really tricky one at the moment. And I mean, it all comes down to, and the same with any products, whether it's, you know, microfibers uh, recycling, right at the very beginning, when you make your product is being really clear on, you know, what is your product? How is it going to be used? And therefore, what are the best materials to do that? But then also thinking about, well, what happens when it's not used? And, you know, what happens then? Microfibers are definitely a huge challenge. You know, uh, we're finding um, plastic microfibers that are popping up in, you know, all sorts of remote parts of the world, um, increasingly looking like they have impacts on you know, the marine life and, and accumulating up the food chain. And on top of that, the actual fibres themselves that end up in aquatic systems are absorbing toxic chemicals that are in the water as well. So they're becoming little sponges for um, hazardous chemicals. So when you look at the circular economy and how can that help, well, then you need to start saying, well, actually, from the very, very beginning, how can we make products that don't shed those microfibers? Or if they shed those microfibers, how do we make sure that they don't cause harm to the systems that they end up in? So can they easily, safely um, and, and completely biodegrade? And that, by that, it means not break up into smaller pieces of plastic, but actually become something safe. Um, and of course, ensuring that from the outset that the, the chemistry that you use on those fibers in the first place is something that should end up in a marine environment, um, that it's not going to become harmful to, to the animals or anything that might ingest it. Um, so it's definitely on design and really considering what could be innovative ways to prevent them from, from shedding in the first place. And I think on this one, in the meantime, there is just a need to really look at 
devices that can capture them if they do escape and really prevent them um, from, from getting into the environment. Because, I mean, if we look around, uh, you know, what's out there on the market... 60% of what's made is, is plastic-based, and we're not going to replace that overnight. So it's going to take time to start to see what could be solutions to design out those, some of those more harmful um, fibres. Any of these new materials that we are potentially looking at, would it mean that maybe our, uh, our consumers will have to pay more for their clothes, Francois? That's a very good question. So what, what we're looking at is the current model has been perfected over nearly 200 years since the first industrial revolution, right? So when you want to change the system from one that's been optimized over like 200 years towards one that's brand new, of course, it's going to require investment and there's going to be a cost associated with that transition. Now, what we see is the pace at which innovation happens today makes the economies of scale and learning happen much faster than they did over the previous generation. So what we can foresee is the cost might be a little higher in the beginning, but that's going to fade away quite quickly. And the second aspect of that is if you create clothing that ends up being used more and you create more opportunities to sell that clothing, you provide it like you provide a resale platform or you rent it or you repair it or you remake it. The opportunity is you have to recover the initial investment that you've put in that product are much better than the ones you had if you just sell it once, often at a discount. So Yes, it's probably going to cost a little more. And we've seen that with um, a project that we did called the Jeans Redesign, where we asked for better cotton, we asked for better finishing techniques, we asked for like a number of innovations in the product to ensure they could be fit for a circular economy. And that ends up like increasing slightly the cost of the product, not in a dramatic way, but slightly. I guess the, what you're touching on, Francois, is that, of course, as, as that progresses, competition in the market should bring that cost back down. Absolutely. So the more you learn about those new techniques, the more you, the more the system becomes effective. Because today what you see is only a, a tiny portion of the system is ready for a second economy. Cut organic cotton, 1% of total cotton. So of course it's more expensive. Of course it's harder to source. But the more you demand organic cotton, the more it's going to be available, the more the farmers will be able to optimize their operations for that, the easier it will be to get it. And it's the same for like different manufacturing techniques. Or even if you think about the recycling ecosystem, today there's like 1% of the product that can be recycled. Well, you need to find them. You need to get them out of that pile of basically garbage to send them to a proper recycling technique. And that costs a lot of money. But the more good products you find in that pile of collected stuff, the easier it would be to sort, the more effective it would be, the cheaper it would be. And then you start activating like the benefits of having that system that shifts. There's a great question on Facebook, Laura. Um, Laura, obviously a person of style, is yeah. definitely the right person to ask the question from Nanny, I think. Yeah. So, Laura, we have a question that says, do you think that if the fashion industry would change the narrative and start talking about style rather than fashion, would, would that help the urge to buy and produce up to 12 seasons per year? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. And I mean, I guess we quite often talk about value. And I think style is, you know, something that people value. So I think it's a really nice compliment to say, how can you rethink what is the fashion industry bringing and how can you offer that? Um, I mean, definitely the fact that the you know, 12 seasons per year just continues to drive the idea that you need something new and you have to keep up with the, the, the trends. Actually, if we can be clear on, you know, what is timeless design, what is classic design um, and, and be clear on that then I think that definitely provides a, an interesting opportunity. And again, I think, you know, as we were saying earlier, it, there needs to be diversity 
for everyone across the, the, you know, the whole world, style is going to mean something different. So how can you help and provide, um, you know, something classic for the person that loves their jeans and t-shirt and they just don't want to ever have to go shopping again and that is their style and they love that and it works for them how can you support them and build a relationship with them as an organization to maintain those clothes keep them looking like new um, and then you've also got people that style to them is you know changing and having rapidly um, evolving outfits having something different for instagram every day and then there's sort of these really new interesting ideas of you know could you even have virtual clothing that doesn't even exist that you can just superimpose on your instagram profile picture or whatever that might be to meet that person's needs. Um, so I think it's a really interesting way to think about it and, and how can we you know, answer <coughs> what style means to, to different people. And so what, one, one question that comes to mind is that there, are a, there is a lot of information about uh, these clothes that you know, the consumers need to understand when buying their clothes and making their choices. Um, are there tools that make these available to our uh, to our customers? Francois, maybe you can take that question. That's a very good question. So there's a, there's a, a lot of different apps um, that exist today. Um, I think Good On You being one of those um, that help see through the midst of all the information that are being provided. Um, there's also some tests about like more industry standards um, to share the, the, the best practices. Uh, but today, there's not something universal like a, 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 something you can scan the barcode of, uh, of the product and really have all the information that you need. But more and more as the industry is working on transparency, that's happening. And I think one of the key elements there is we see more and more activation on social media amongst others of people demanding more transparency, asking more questions of the brands. And I think, I think the more that happens, the faster the information will be available. I really think that uh, what we're touched both with the kind of digital opportunity, the mm. um, style piece. This is in some ways, I think, when when I'm listening to you, is what makes the circle me distinct from some of the other approaches to trying to tackle this fashion problem. And that it's not talking about how do we restrict the things that people really value and like. It's talking mm. about how do we dive into a different economy or transform the economy so it just operates differently and still provides all these things that as you described it, Laura, of course, provide value. What we haven't talked too much about yet is some of the actors in this economy who might, uh, and what role, what specific roles they're already playing, where some of the opportunities and innovation opportunities are for them. Is there a lot of, uh, you know, we had um, uh, Cecilia from H&M on this show um, in our previous season, and what, one of the things she said was, we're part of the problem, and so that we're really trying to be part of the solution. Is there a lot of awareness in industry, um, Laura, that they need to try and innovate their way out of this because they're sort of running out of time? Yeah, I mean, definitely we're seeing that increase in awareness. And I think when we started looking at this a few years ago in, in fashion, you know, there was definitely some awareness maybe on chemistry and, you know, toxic chemicals. So the materials going into the products. Yes. Exactly, you know, you know, whether it's the dyes or um, the coatings that they put on top of them to give them a nice soft finish at the end. You know, I think that was starting to be tackled. Things like the, the Greenpeace detox campaign had brought, you know, to a lot of people's attention how awful some of the chemistry was that was being used in factories that was ending up in rivers, um, you know, in Asia that was really polluting the environment that was making um, the clothes. Um, things like business models hadn't really been on the table until very recently. And I think that's where we've really seen the shift in awareness is this understanding that, you know, you can go so far 
with some of the more traditional sustainability elements of reducing water use, reducing, reducing energy use, um, you know, working on your, your chemicals and ensuring they're not hazardous. But if you don't completely address the, uh, as we mentioned earlier, sort of the overproduction, you know, the actual use of the, the clothing themselves, you are just still churning through lots of different resources that don't ultimately um, get put back in and used again and will all end up in, in landfill. Um, so definitely we're seeing much more awareness and, and we're noticing that through strategic decisions that, that companies are making. So H&M have been quite ahead in that, in, in putting out quite strong targets on being circular. Um, we've also seen recently that Tommy Hilfiger and, and Timberland, just to name a couple, have really started to demonstrate their commitment to this through integrating um, the, sort of the principles of a circular economy into their overall strategy. And I think the audience has picked up on some of the stuff we have on the <laughs> on the table today. Um, we, ha we have a question uh, uh, on YouTube from Clem, who is asking, what does a circular, circular garment look like? Maybe we can briefly say what we have on the table today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, that goes, uh, it, it's an interesting one, right? Say, what does it look like? We're saying actually there needs to be flexibility to offer it to people to still be fashionable, to still meet their needs. It's not necessarily um, round is what you're saying. It's not necessarily round, no. I think that would be quite an interesting uh, future if we're going for circular clothing in that sense. Um, but it does meet the three principles that we talked about. So it should be made in a way that it's really durable and, and can last for a long time. It's easy to repair. It's made also so that it can be um, taken apart and actually put back in. And, and a, a huge challenge today is that the composition of the materials that are used um, normally mix lots of different things together. So when it comes to recycling, you know, whether it's a pair of jeans or, um, you know, a jacket or so on, actually taking apart all the components and getting back to the original materials is so tricky um, that, as Francois was saying, even if you've gone through all the effort to get them back and put them into a pile, the value that's there because the recycling technologies just don't exist um, is, is a real challenge. So, so definitely something that can be durable, it can last. It's made so that it can easily be taken back and put back into another piece of clothing after use. And as we've just discussed, you know, it's made with completely safe chemistry. It's not going to be hazardous to either the people that are making it um, or to, to the environment. And within that, then I guess the sky's the limit because then the creativity is those are the, the boundaries. It can look like anything within that. So you could wear, you could wear a circular economy garment without even knowing it. Exactly. And I think that goes a little bit back to earlier when we're saying about, you know, how can customers have the information to make the right choices? I guess the dream, the ultimate one, is that no one has to make a choice anymore. You know, you can walk into a, a shop and anything you pick up would meet those conditions and, and you wouldn't even need to think about it. And I think it's very exciting as well, probably to, for our audience at home to know that we're going to be exploring some of these examples of products, of business models with people who are already doing it in the fashion industry in the following uh, episodes that we'll have in the next four weeks. Um, Francois, I would like to ask you, uh, what are the biggest innovation challenges that the fashion industry is facing at the moment? So in terms of innovation challenges that we see, the main one is to really shift the way in which the, the business is being done. So today, growth is measured by producing and selling more. That's how we assess the success of companies. And the main challenge is to move away from that to measure growth and success in terms of how much use you get from the products that you create. And so changing the business model and the operating model of the industry, and we mentioned reset, we mentioned repair, rental, remaking, restyling, all those models, scaling them is really the main challenge. Because as long as we're in a model where 
companies have that incentive to chunk out more stuff, we can't be successful. And then we can look at some of the technology that are needed. We've seen with the genes redesign that stretch is a big issue. So we need to innovate to get a material that provides stretch while being recyclable. Like the recycling technologies also need to evolve so that they can take more complexity because a world where we just have monomaterium products like 100% cotton or 100% PET is not necessarily desirable because the performance of the field sometimes requires several different materials and the, the technology needs to adapt to that. So there's a lot of like innovation that needs to unlock like that transformation, but the main one is changing the business so that we don't have that incentive of making more and more. And, and the, the sort of point you're making there is that if you go to a resale model, you're not necessarily going to be showing these sort of quarter by quarter sales growth. You're going to be getting back investment over a much longer period of time. Is the Absolutely. answer to that different policy, different finance? Is, is, that, is that stuff that actually sits across the industry versus something an individual company can do? Absolutely. So there's a, there's a lot of things that an individual company can do. But again, if you want to change an entire industry at an individual scale, no matter how big you are, you can't succeed. So you really need that to work together. And then you need people to like support that transition. So the finance industry definitely has a role to play. And it's got a role to play, not only in terms of like providing finance to those new models and supporting that innovation, but also in how they measure success from companies. A huge part of the decisions that are made at bond level are dictated by the shareholders. So the more investors understand the need for change and understand the opportunity of changing the criteria against which they assess companies, the faster that change can happen. And then you've got policymaker. Policymaker sets the ground rules for how industry operates, and they've got two tools. The first one is coercive. You put bans, you put criteria on like what can or cannot happen. But they also have a role in stimulating innovation by providing funding, by providing like incentives for new models. So there's a lot, there's a lot that can happen across. And then when you talk about enabler, you also have like in terms of customers, like the more customers just dimensions. We're not even talking about like going through the pain of like searching for the good stuff or like just by demanding change, by being very clear in your communications. And with smartphones, you've got direct access to like any brand that you want. By demanding better processes, by demanding change, we've seen that well very well with the hashtag pay up campaign over the summer, like that can unlock change very quickly. Hashtag pay up for anyone who doesn't know what that was. Yeah, so basically, like over the summer with the COVID crisis, what happened is a lot of brands started to not pay their suppliers for orders that already been put in. And a huge campaign started to organize on social media, like listing all the brands that hadn't paid and asking them to pay up. And that rallied a lot, a lot of people behind it, putting pressure and contributing massively to a lot of those brands and, you know, paying their suppliers. Thank you, Francois. And that, what you just said directly answers one of the questions from our audience who was asking, what can she do as a consumer uh, to help us in this transition? We have yeah, time. I think trying, oh, sorry. I was it's saying, okay, like, I ahead. think trying like those new models, so tr giving it a try. If you haven't tried like rental or buying secondhand or stuff, like try it, try those models, um, and then yeah, demand change. I think, Seb, we have time for a final we've question. Got, we've got some great questions coming through, Laura. It'd be a shame not to ask at least one or two more of them. Would you like to ask the following one, Seb? Uh, <laughs> great. So uh, just to run through a couple of them, 
Christian uh, says, um, not Christian, sorry, Georgia says, uh, don't know how I got those, your name's confused. Georgia, how important do you think design, the design part of garment production is when creating better clothing? Very, very important, I think, is, the, is what huge. we've been saying yeah. uh, for the last little <laughs> bit. Um, and, uh, and then Matt asked an interesting question, uh, which relates to one of the principles of a circular economy. So I'll put you on the spot here, Laura. Are there opportunities for fashion to regenerate the environment, not just zero harm, but positive impact? We love that question, Matt. That's a great question. And I mean, the, the quick answer is yes, absolutely. Lots of opportunities. Um, I mean, the materials that the fashion industry use, uh, as I mentioned, you know, 60% are coming from, from fossil-based sources at the moment. Um, but at least that provides, you know, a huge opportunity for recycling and to keep those materials uh, in use. But the remaining 40% is coming from the land, you know, whether that's through cotton, um, whether it's being you know, sort of trees that then get turned into lyocell or these, these um, sort of softer materials, whether it's um, wool and so on. Within that space there, there's a huge opportunity to shift how those are, are grown. Cotton is massively water intensive, use loads of um, pesticides and fertilizers to grow and, and can have a huge impact on depleting the natural resources within the soil. By changing that, you know, there's an opportunity to really shift to actually leave the soil in a, in a better health and, and capture carbon um, and to really ensure that that can be grown for a long time for the future. So actually, by moving to those sorts of practices, it's also building resilience for the fashion supply chain in the future. And we're seeing again, I mean, I, I mentioned Timberland already, but we're seeing bold commitments of, of brands that are looking to move towards 100% regenerative inputs to their products. <coughs> And it's funny that fashion is one of those industries that, you know, the, the foundation has this, uh, for those of you, most of our viewers I think will be familiar with it, but it's called the butterfly diagram and it shows the system of biological and technical materials, actually technical and biological. Um, fashion in many ways transcends, transcends those two cycles because you don't necessarily immediately connect regenerative agriculture to the fashion industry, but it's just as strong a theme there as it perhaps is even in the world of food. Yeah, absolutely. And to what we're seeing is a lot of uh, innovation also in taking in in replacing a huge chunk of the like synthetic oil-based material with natural ones. So using kelp or like similar materials to get those properties, and that also creates additional opportunities to like regenerate ecosystems, um, which is really really exciting. I think you mentioned the butterfly diagram there, Seb, that we all love. I mean, absolutely, this has been one of the, I guess, the trickier parts for us to get our heads around when looking at how do you design and keep products moving around in the fashion industry because actually things that are made out of cotton have great opportunities to operate in what we call the technical cycle. So they're a biological material that can be recycled mechanically. So you can shred it up and turn it into a new yarn. You can also use chemicals to sort of extract that material and make it into yet another new yarn. Um, so there's hu huge opportunities. So it almost becomes a figure of eight, whereby you've extracted your materials, you want to get as much use out of them, whether that's through reuse, recycling, repair, you know, and then you can ultimately compost or you know, return them back into the biological cycle. So there you have it, a great introduction to what a circular economy for fashion looks like. For the industry to thrive in the future, we must transform its current take-make-waste linear model into one where clothes are kept their highest value and designed to never end up as waste. Keep an ear out for our next episode, where we'll be diving into our jeans redesign project, a tangible example of how clothes can be designed from the outset to never end up as waste, a project that brings the vision of a circular economy for fashion to life. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, share and comment from wherever you're listening and join us next time for the story of the jeans redesign.
Thanks for listening to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's Explore the Circular Economy podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe.